I know you think I'm like a hard, cold captain of industry type. That's not all there is. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, everyone. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, ably assisted as always every weekend by our buddy, <laughs> tall guy, Nathan at the board. He's, he's making the funny faces at us on Zoom here. Oh, he's messing with us. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot this is radio and it doesn't really translate over, but happy World Emoji Day. I did not know there was such a thing. Your face did look like an emoji. That was good. Yeah, it started in 2014, and I guess uh, July 17th, we celebrate the emojis and the language they bring to the phone industry. So, And the money. Yeah, all these (laughs) little fancy faces and pictures going around. Okay, well, if I want to keep up with current events, I have to make sure I stay in touch with Nathan. He knows all this good stuff. And all that high-tech stuff that you youngsters enjoy and understand far better than we do. I'm still waiting for Mabel to come back on the party line here so we can do a show. We are lucky today once again. And we invite, we said, when your book comes out, Carl Petri, we want to copy and we want to interview you about it. And wow, our expectations, which were high enough, have been exceeded by this book. It's just a hoot. It's also spooky. It also asks big questions about the nature of reality and our interaction while we are human beings in these earth suits, these bodies of ours, what it is to perceive. And it even suggests that some people misperceive while others perceive deeply. We met Carl Petri when we read his first book, Absent Witness. And we became enthralled with his writing style and with his stories. And we said, when your next book comes out, be sure to let us know. And it is pretty much hot off the presses. And I think, Gary, what I was reading with you in his new book called Somewhere the Dead Are Singing is I learned a whole lot more about Carl Petri, the person. So I think we're going to ask him some questions today. Yes, we definitely will. And we want to hear the stories. And the stories. The man has them to tell. My goodness. Carl Petri was born with the ability to see and communicate with the dead, experience visions of the past in everyday surroundings, and help people who want to know the fate of loved ones, find lost valuables, or simply understand why they are haunted. Carl believes strongly in living a balanced life. He is an unassuming person who doesn't flaunt his visions or abilities. He's not a big self-marketer. That's another way of putting it. Carl cautions fellow experiencers about the dangers of becoming too strongly immersed in the psychic and paranormal realms. He stresses the importance of having earthbound interests and activities as well to keep the gifted anchored in their reality, a reality that we all share. And now we're going to share some time with the man himself, Carl Petri. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Yes, I, this is a wonderful opportunity for me. Thank you very much for having me on the show again. We are very happy to have you. And, you know, interestingly, and one of the things that I I do not know that I understood completely from the first book, from Absent Witness, from the second book, I really got this idea about the balanced life. And Gary has said for years and years on the radio, 
that you don't want to be left-brained or right-brained because then you're cracked-brained. You want to be whole-brained. You want to use both your analytical side and your intuitive side as equally as you can. And now you're the next person that I've heard really state that in a book that you want to live a balanced life. And for you, it's the physical and the metaphysical. And I was surprised to learn that you have a lot of physical skills. You have a skill set where you can use your hands to repair and get things done. And that actually plays a major role in your story in this book. Absolutely. Um, growing up, you know, without money, you learn how to do a lot of things really quickly. And uh, so when I was younger, uh, it was learn how to wire something like electricity, uh, build something with wood. Um, so when you went to school, it just reinforced everything. And they taught you how to use the tools better. And uh, as I grew up, it all came in handy. And uh, yeah. it's part of my story. This is what I do. Well, I think it's an important part of your story too, Carl, because you didn't grow up with your head in the clouds. Your head might've been somewhat in the clouds with your psychic ability, but your feet were definitely on the ground as you're learning how to live in this physical 3D world, which I think helps keep a person rather sane when they have the kind of abilities that you have where you can see into more than one dimension. Yes. Um, when I when I grew up, uh, most of, like my father was in World War II. Uh, my uncles were in World War II. All the people in our neighborhood, all the men were in World War II. And, uh, you know, when they came home from the war, their thing was, uh, we want to average a normal life. We want our kids to grow up maybe go to school, you know, graduate high school, go to college and just leave a normal life. For me at that time, when things were happening, and if I was to say something on the paranormal theme and say that I see these things or I understand these things, that would never ever be accepted. That would mean that my son, or if it's a daughter, uh, she's now like the twilight zone. And I got a real problem on my hands. So throughout my youth, no matter what I saw, I kept my mouth shut because it would cause me nothing but grief. So I had to carry this throughout my life until I got older. You know, we've heard that quite a bit, Carl, from people who have these abilities that um, a lot of times when people are young and they have psychic abilities, they think, well, everybody has that. Right. And then they find out that everybody doesn't have that ability. And then there's this sense of I'm different. And so we find in a lot of cases, people keeping their abilities to themselves, they might use them but they're keeping them to themselves because they want to fit in and not be ridiculed by classmates or get beaten up in the schoolyard, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, so it, it, it's interesting that you kind of follow along in that pattern. And it also gives you a chance to mature a little bit because I think when you're very young, you really don't know how to hold all this stuff. 
But then as you get into your 20s, 30s, 40s, you're maturing and then you, you can figure out how to be in both worlds. When, when would you say that happened for you where you could be in both worlds equally? Well, I believe it happened towards the end of the, uh, my junior year in high school. Oh, early. Yeah, I, uh, I knew about things, but I always kept my mouth shut, let it go. And my marks were not well in school. I was not a very good student. Uh, always having this conflict going on in my head. And um, my parents were very angry because my, my, um, my marks weren't that high. So I was sitting, I recall at the time sitting in the classroom, looking at the teacher and I knew exactly what, A, what he was thinking, what was gonna be on the test. I could see the test. And I said, you know what? I'm forget about all the other stuff in the past. I am now going to use this. And what happened is I went from a, which I wrote about in my uh, first book, I went from a DC student to a superior student. One teacher said to me, I could only give you an A. There's nothing higher. And he looked at me and he said, I believe you know more about this subject than I do. And he wow. made me assistant teacher because I could, I knew what he was thinking. I knew what was on the test. And then I would look at the books and a lot of the stuff in the books, I just memorized. This is so reminiscent <laughs> of one of my favorite TV programs. And it turned out differently because of Carl's explanation. Honestly, Carl, I, I could see the principal coming in and saying, I don't know how you're doing this, Bilko, but when I find out, I'm going to throw you out of the army. <laughs> well, what happened to me is that uh, we had homeroom and they were handing out the report cards. And uh, the teacher at the time, he knew uh, what kind of a student I was. And he handed out the report cards and he walked up to me and he saw straight A's. And he was a short teacher, shorter than I was. He grabbed me by the collar, pulled me out of the seat. And he said, we're going to the principal's office. He says, you, you, you phoned up this card. And he goes, you show yourself as a straight A student. And as we were walking towards the principal's office, he took his hand and was hitting me in the back. You know, like faster, faster, we're going there. And he was very, very angry. So we got into the principal's office and the vice principal was there. And the vice principal uh, said, what's the problem? And he goes, he went ahead and he changed all the marks on his report card. He, he was a, a, at best, a C student. And now he's a straight A student. He goes, he's so stupid. He should have made some B's and some C's. No, he went to all A's. And uh, the uh, vice principal said, I'll be right back. He went inside the room, came back with all the sheets of paper. And he said, no, he is a straight A student. The teacher didn't know what to say. He goes, I apologize. I didn't think anybody could do this. And it's like, well, I did. He goes, all right, get, get back to the classroom. And he looked at the uh, vice principal and the teacher said, I'm sorry. I just didn't think this was possible. And it was all because you start getting shoved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get back in your office. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, what it came down to is that uh, the minute I kicked gears and I said, I'm going to use this ability, I profited from it. Major profiting. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that is, so. and this is great. And, and Suzanne, I'm glad you followed this line of questioning because I'm very curious. We have heard in past interviews with you, Carl, about the influence of the late great Ingo Swan yes. regarding uh, remote viewing. But with a lovely tribute to start the book to our mutual friend, the dearly departed <clears throat> Rosemary Ellen Guiley, let me ask you this, Carl. Yes. Rosemary herself, who just had friends worldwide, I don't know how she found time for all these relationships and writing. 60 some books in addition. Unbelievable. But what I'm curious to know is, to what extent would you say that Rosemary Ellen Guiley was developmental in her relationship with you? Because you got to work with one of the all time greats. Yes. Um, well, you know, we knew each other for quite a while. As a matter of fact, she met me. Uh, we first met through the Parapsychology Foundation in New York. She heard about me and wanted to come and meet me. And then we sat there and then I, I guess, showed her what I could do. And uh, that's, that's all I had to do. She wanted to be friends, you mm. know, with somebody who could do uh, the, or had the abilities that I had. And uh, we were friends ever since. Mm. You know, when, when we, when Gary and I have talked to psychic mediums of our acquaintance, we often get into the various clairs. Are you clairsentient? Are you clairaudient? Are you clairvoyant? Can you see? Can you hear? You know, what is it that your major clairs are? And one of the things that Gary and I were reading in one of the very first uh, early on in your book, Somewhere the Dead Are Singing, we were reading about something called retrocognition. And I said to Gary, I don't recall our having this conversation with any mediums before. So let's ask Carl about that. What is retrocognition and what happened in Cape May, New Jersey? Okay. Retrocognition is the ability to go somewhere and to stare at the area. And I could tell you what was there before, what it looked like, and uh, uh, what the people were like. I could hear the conversations by people even 100, 100 or more years ago. I could hear it. And uh, that's what really shakes up people. Now, when you have an ability like this, number one, what good is it? Well, people who are restoring their homes, you know, bringing it back to where it was 120 years ago, there's nobody better than to bring me through the doors and I could walk through their house and I could point out what was there before. And so I was doing this for quite a while. People who were restoring mansions in the more affluent area of uh, where I live. And, uh, and I was like, in this one case, uh, I said to them that on the molding, there were, it was, there was a holder for a picture and you would see the wires come down on the face of the wall and you would see the picture. And then I would walk around and I would point to every spot where there was one. And the guy, he looked drained. He was very angry. He said, I brought a master carpenter here from Ireland. And one of the things I want him to do is fix those holes. Cause I didn't know why those holes oh, were there. Gosh, because I paid him a lot of money to do that. So I went through the house and I said, oh, by the way, there used to be a wall here. And I described where the wall was. Uh, they, they grabbed their uh, uh, blueprints for the house, which they had. And they opened it up and they looked. Sure enough, there was a wall there. 
So they loved it. They loved the fact that I could go ahead and I could do this. <clears throat> so that was one of the things I was doing, uh, but having this ability. Uh, there was um, a case where with retrocognition, I could look into a photograph, go inside the photograph, turn around and see who's taking the picture. I said this at the Parapsychology Foundation, and I said that to uh, Dr. Joanne McMahon. And I, I just said it as a matter of fact. So she invited me to her house, and she had in her uh, dining room a bureau, and she had all these family pictures on it. So she said, look at those pictures. Is there a picture that you can go into and tell me about? So I saw a there were two women. One had an apron on. And they were inside of a, gar of a garden. And I pointed to the woman with the apron. And I said, she's very worried because this is taken during the war. She had to collect a lot of uh, ration stamps in order to buy a big chunk of meat that she has cooking. The man that's taken the picture, I could see him. He's a, uh, a man has problems with his, his hands. He's trying to hold the camera, but he's having difficulties trying to hold it straight. I said he has blue pants on and a white shirt. It looks like he had a tie on and he took it off. So I assumed this is possibly a Sunday. And this was happened during the war. And she was worried that her roast was going to burn because it's taken so long for this man to take the picture. So after I gave her the information, I says, okay, I says, I'm leaving. I'll see you some other time. When I left, she got on the phone. The two women in the, in the picture was her mother and her mother's sister. Her mother's sister had the apron on. And so she said, uh, do you remember that picture you gave me of mom and you in the garden? She goes, oh, I remember that. I'll never forget that. She goes, we took that during the war. She goes, it was uh, on Magazine Street. That's the name of the street. And she said, Oh, I remember that. It was your uncle Stan who had polio and it couldn't hold the camera straight. And it was taking forever to take that picture. And she goes, wouldn't you know it? I had a roast in the oven and it was taking so long. I was afraid that it was going to burn. Wow. So she goes, thank you very much. And then Dr. McMahon called me up and she said, everything you said was correct. Because I was able to go into the picture, turn around and look out. So many of the stories you have to tell, and every one of them is fascinating, illustrate that there is an, an interface between this dimension and other dimensions. Maybe it's true after all that we live in a multidimensional universe. Some people take that for granted. Other people aren't so sure, the more heavily materialistic types there are quite skeptical. And that's okay. We're investigating all of this. And we love to talk about that, if for no other reason than to challenge our imaginations, our preconceptions, and to enjoy the stories. Carl, you have such great stories about the places you are willing to go. It reminds me of that old saying, that cautionary note about going in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> there, it seems to me that, that you're a man of integrity. That's unquestioned. There, but it also seems like you're someone who has that intestinal fortitude to go into a situation that other people's uh, other people might warn you about, like that's too dangerous. I really don't like the energy in there. 
be wary of these people there. And yet you want to get the story. There's a, there's a bit of a, a, a old fashioned reporter and journalist and investigative journalist in you with all of your other credentials. You are a guy who is intent on getting to the truth. Yes. That's, that's really true. Um, I recall uh, one place I went to was the uh, World Trade Center after it fell down. And uh, I was with Rosemary Guiley. Uh, and at the time, she was dating this her, her friend. And I said, I have avoided going to the World Trade Center because I don't know what I'm going to see. Yeah. She said, well, why don't we go anyway? I said, okay, I'm very close to the World Trade Center. I'm right over the river. I said, okay, let's go. So I went there with my wife, Rosemary, and her, her boyfriend at the time. And we went to the site where the building collapsed. And I stood there and I told everybody, just stay behind me. Don't go near me. And I walked down the street and I stood there and I looked. And all of a sudden I could see, um, you, you know what a barcode looks like? Right. Yes. Uh, you know, all these little lines, whatever. Right. Right. I was looking straight ahead and it looked like a barcode, a barcode that was shaking back and forth. Mm. I never saw that before. And yeah. as this barcode is shaking back and forth, I started seeing people coming through this barcode. And a lot of them were dressed uh, as you would in an office, you know, right. white shirt, tie, pants. And they started to come towards me. And I, I yelled at, I said, stay where you are. Something's happening. And I don't know what it is yet. And they started to come towards me. Her boyfriend went past Rosemary, past me, stood in front and he said, oh, I could see it too. And everything disappeared. Poof. I never knew what that was all about. Interesting. Rosemary was very, very upset. Oh, she stopped going out with him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> because it was the dumbest thing he could ever do. But I'll never forget that. I don't know what that was all about. It's a big question mark here. But it was really, it was scary. At the same time, very curious because I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, so that's a very unusual happening that happened to me with Rosemary. When you were around the site, Carl, did you have sensory impressions? And I know why you would be afraid. I would too. I would just not want to be around anything that might replicate itself as a kind of sense memory, a trace memory of such a horrible event. You wouldn't want to be looking at that. I know I wouldn't. But was there anything indicative to you of the nature of the event or any communication they're either from people or, let's call it for lack of a better word, data about people who died the way they did for a specific cause. And I ask you this because, you know, you still have your 9-11 truthers. Oh, that was an inside job. This and that happened. And they brought this in. There's no way that the buildings could have fallen this way. And all of these sorts of things. Was there something that was so illuminating to you that you became confident in your understanding of what caused that horrible atrocity and what the effects were on the people who gave their lives, both as victims, but also as first responders trying to reach the victims? Uh, cause, no, nothing like that. However, uh, 
I wrote a story about uh, Angela Webb in my first book, a woman who died at the World Trade Center. And I saw the way she died. I was next to her watching her die. Uh, the strange thing was she fell to the ground when this plane hit and the flames came out and she was still alive. She reached up to her top of her desk and she touched the keyboard that was on her desk. And as she did, the, uh, uh, the keys already started to melt and her hands went into the melted plastic. Mm. And she was poor in and it was she as she was falling back down to the uh, floor, the keyboard with her fingers were just smearing it down. And I had to watch this woman that I knew. I just watched her die. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was a horrible, horrible vision. You know, Carl, that's when your gift becomes a burden. I mean, you carry around a lot on your shoulders. I mean, you're a yes. competent man here in this earthly life, but you have something that there would justifiably be called a gift, but also a burden because once this presents itself to you, it's like evidence that demands to be seen or heard. Right. Yeah, it was um, things like that are very, very sad and you feel helpless. There's nothing you can do. And you just watch people die. You know what's going through their mind. And you could share it with people. But then you have another problem. You see, a lot of people don't believe it. They don't believe in psychic abilities. They don't believe in anything that I do. So you try to talk to them one-on-one -on -one and you tell them things. And they just shrug their shoulders and don't believe and walk away. And that's what I think is very sad. Because a lot of times I'm trying to give out information that the deceased wanted to give to other members of their family, but I can't because they don't believe it. And I come back to, look, I don't get paid for this. I'm not looking for any glory for this. You know, if you're going to tell anybody, don't even mention my name or just go with the information. And that's all I ask. And people can't do that. A lot of people can't do that. If it's not what they want and what they believe, if it's not what they uh, uh, what they want to project to other people, it's just the way it is. And so I have to walk away with that. And there's nothing I could do. Very sad. Yeah. Let's take our break now. Yes, and I we have a, a happier story when we come back. Oh, we've got story. We always have stories. We thrive on stories. And has <laughs> Carl ever got them? <laughs> in plenitude. He's also got a book out. It's newly published, and I think that you should read it. Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. What a title. Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Carl Petry, P-E-T-R-Y, just like the old Dick Van Dyke show. I'm sure he loves to be reminded of that every day. Carl Petry is our honored guest of this hour. We're going to get back into the book and, of course, the stories on the other side of a short break. Give us a couple of minutes. We're Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Manson Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. 
Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM, or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accidents survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Bored with the other stations, hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. <laughs> That's great. I, anytime that was on the radio, Carl, I couldn't help but go, he said it. <laughs> That's always my line. <laughs> hey, they're my hometown the- boys. They're and I have town. the high parts. <laughs> Hometown boys, he says. And we saw Frankie Valley at the Van Wazel Theater in Sarasota, Florida. It was a real privilege to see yes. him. He still had it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They were old and raggedy, but we loved them. <laughs> <laughs> the songs weren't old and raggedy, fortunately. Just the voices. Yeah, you know, they, they managed to push on. That was great. Yeah, yeah very good. Very good. Carl Petri is our guest this hour. We're having a good time. And we want to talk about... Uh, all the stuff that you're into, Carl, Gary and I are familiar with Absent Witness, which we read and talked to you about, and your brand new book, Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Such great, great stories. But you've also done movies. You have a lot of other things going on. If people would like to connect with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Where can they get your books? Anything that you would like to tell our listeners? Uh, they could get it through Amazon. It's probably the best way to get the books. Uh, Somewhere the, uh, the Dead Are Singing and Absent Witness. Um, of course, you could go to Barnes & Noble. But for um, ease, 
you know, Amazon is, is the right place to go. Okay. All right. Uh, I, before the break, I said, we're going to, we're going to come back with something a little happier since we were kind of ending on 9-11. One of the favorite stories that Gary and I had was from your book was about a gas lamp. You were, was, were you dreaming about a gas lamp or were you having a vision about a gas lamp? There was something about a gas lamp and then what happened next? Okay. Well, my uncle lived in a house in Newark, New Jersey, that was built probably in the 1870s. And they didn't have electricity back then, but for lighting, they would have gas lamps. There were pipes that stuck out of the wall, and there was like a little lantern, a little light that they would attach to it. And they would uh, turn the gas on with a little valve and light it. And that would be your how they would illuminate the, uh, the room or the hall, whatever. And I went to see my uncle. And when I went to sleep that night, all these images came to me about the house being built. I saw how they erected the beams, everything about it. And then it centralized itself on a scene that was in the hallway. And in the hallway, there was a man and a young boy, I would say his son, and he would crack open this case, take the Excelsior out, which looks like straw, because they didn't have styrofoam back then. And uh, he was showing them how to build a gas lamp that they were going to put into the, to the wall. And piece by piece, he would show the little boy how to do this. Then he would end by saying, you got to keep the wick low or else you'll burn it out. And then it would repeat again, the same thing. Then again, then again, then again, and it would continue throughout the night. And the next morning I would wake up, my wife would look at me and says, how was your, how did you sleep last night? And I said, terrible. I'm watching this guy build a stupid gas lamp over and over and over again. So she says, well, maybe it'll just go away. Well, the next night it didn't. And it happened again. And I saw him building this stupid gas lamp again and again and again and again. Uh, finally, about maybe even four days or so later, it finally went away. But I knew how to build this gas lamp. Uh, so time went by and I was in town. I live in a town uh, next to Newark and I was in a hardware store. And I was picking up an electric plate, a, a plate for my uh, receptacle. And I heard this guy come in and he had a little box full of parts of a gas lamp. And he said to the guy behind the counter and he said, hey, do you know how to put this thing together? And so the man is Polish, the man who uh, ran the store. And he said, how do you think I am? It's a stupid gas lamp. You know, get yourself something electric. Why do you want to bother with this? This is stupid, you know. The guy goes, well, I'm trying to restore it. And uh, so I heard him and I walked up to the counter and I just took my hands. I grabbed the box. I laid out all the pieces. And as fast as my hands can move, I built this gas lamp. And then before I could think about another thing, out of my mouth came, keep the wick down low or else you'll burn it out. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy looked at me 
And he was shocked that I could take all these pieces and make a gas lamp in seconds. Yeah. And so the Polish guy says, hey, you built that so fast. Would you have a job building these things? I said, well, something like that. <laughs> and I walked out. So here's something that I saw that happened like in 1870. It was a technique of building a gas lamp. And here it was, you know, in a new millennium. And I was able to do it for somebody. Well, there's that retrocognition coming in again, where you're you're talking about seeing the past. You were seeing how that was built a hundred years earlier, and you saw it so many times that you could figure out how to do it. I think that is such a fascinating ability. You could like help straighten out uh, misinformation in history to just go back to some of these places and say, no, no, that wasn't how it was. And you would, you would know the, the truth of it. How fascinating. You would be handy on a movie set. <laughs> and they're trying true. to make it authentic and you'd be telling them how to do this. It's too bad Stanley Kubrick isn't still around because he was a guy who got into the minutia. He could have used you. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, good accent too, by the way. <laughs> you sound like half my relatives in Pittsburgh. <laughs> All of these great stories, we keep saying stories, stories. This book is so wonderful. And again, the title is Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. They're also talking. Carl Petri has come up with a wonderful, thin, but very illustrious volume that really gets you thinking about the interdimensionality of life and our access to it. I wanted now, finally, I can't wait to get into this and take as long as you want to give us all the details, Carl. What about the house that seemed to be besieged by Bigfoot? Uh, yeah, that's a, a very, very strange story. Uh, you know, I, I work in film, so I know a lot of people like makeup people and, and special effects people. And uh, I was with a, uh, a person who does a lot of the makeup. And she said to me, um, I have to collect a check for my last job. She, and she was very angry. She says, she should have mailed me this thing, but I need the money and I'm going to go up, confront her and get the money in the check. She says, you want to come with me? I said, okay, sure. So we went up and we went into this area out in the boondocks and we drove up to the house and I just looked at the house and I got a very funny feeling about it, very strange. And we went in there and they're negotiating to get this check. And I'm looking at the woman, I'm looking at the area. And so we're ready to leave. And I said, what the heck? I'm never going to see this woman again. I'm just going to say what's on my mind. So we start walking down the stairs. I turned around. I looked at this woman and I said, were you ever abducted? I said, by aliens. Now, the woman that I went with, the makeup artist, she spun around, looked at me like I had three heads. Like, why would I say that to her, to this woman that hires her? And the woman just stared back at me. And she said, yes, I was. How do you know that? And I said, you were camping with two other girls and you had a campfire. And all of a sudden you were gone. And the girls thought you left and went home. And I says, and then a little while later, you came back and a campfire was just ambers. It was just about out. 
And then the girls came out and they said, where were you? Knowing very well that you were not, you were not there. You were taken aboard a craft. And she says, I never told anybody that, not even my husband, because I'm afraid of the ridicule about that. So I said, well, I, I see it. And everything I'm telling you is true. And you know, it's true. And I went into more details about that. And I even said what she was wearing because I could see her and I know what she was wearing, what her girlfriends were wearing and what they look like. All factual. Now, the house, I said, you're in a very weird place. There's a lot of stuff going on around your house. And uh, I said, you ever feel like, I feel like there's somebody watching me all the time here. Even if it's through your roof, I feel like I'm always being watched. And she goes, yeah, sometimes there's like little balls of light that go zipping through my house. Mm. And she said, um, wow. I, I don't know what that is. And then after a while, I kept on looking at her and I said, um, how about Bigfoot? Now, I, I never was into Bigfoot. You know, I, I like to read about UFOs. I like to speak to people about that. But I was never a Bigfoot guy. But it just came out and I said, what about Bigfoot? And then she said to me, oh, she goes, yes. She goes, they're here. So um, I went around the house and I, I felt this house is in some sort of a vortex. Mm. Um, there was an area by the house where I would walk past the house. And at a certain point, you couldn't hear any noise. You, you couldn't hear your feet going through the uh, leaves. Everything was quiet. She talked about walking her dog and the dog went into this area. She couldn't hear him. He took off. She's yelling for him and there was no audio. She couldn't hear anything. Eventually, the dog came by her side. I went there with a compass and I started walking on the property and north wasn't north, south wasn't south, west wasn't west. And everywhere I would go, the compass would have a crazy reaction on her property. And her husband, will not he does not believe, he's an uh, insurance salesman. He runs a company. He refuses to believe any of this. Even if it's in your face, I don't believe it. Uh, because he doesn't want to alienate his connections at the country club. So we're at the house and one day the dog starts acting really wild and they go to the second level. They look out the door and right outside, she says, is a typical Bigfoot, about 10 foot high. We're looking at it through the glass doors and it's looking at us. So she turns to her husband. She said, is it a deer? No. Is it a bear? He goes, no. She goes, then what is it? He goes, I don't know. And then the things just started to walk away. Um, so around the house, you can see at night, they take trees and they cross them. Uh, I, Rosemary Guiley said that they, when they cross these uh, trees, it means it's my territory. 
And so you'll see these X's around their house. And uh, so they are marking off the territory. This is their place. And I still couldn't get 100% handle on it. I saw the footprints. They were around. I just couldn't get a handle on it till one day I walked into the woods and I turned around and I saw her house and I said, oh my God, I am now seeing through the eyes what these people are seeing. I am now seeing through the eyes of Bigfoot and I know where they are, where they stand and they are interdimensional. That means they could have been standing right next to me and I could not see them. So then I knew what it was. Uh, We had two very famous psychics from England. They were visiting us in Rosemary Guiley. And we asked them to come with us to this house to get their input of what's at that house, but would not tell them what we knew. So they went to the house, and one's name is Stuart. One man's name is Dean. They went into the house, and Stuart said, um, there is something big, he goes, staring inside this house. And he goes, they walk by your sliding glass doors, and they could see inside. Um, I personally, there's three levels to the house. I cannot walk to the third level because I fall on my face. My head starts to spin, and I drop. Uh, I tried it a number of times, and I gave it up. Uh, they came from England. Stuart walked up the stairs. He said, I feel kind of woozy. Dean, the other one, went to the second level and he says, I can't go any further. Hmm. So this there's this uh, property in New Jersey. Uh, well, actually, it's it's the New York area. And we're uh, close to New Jersey, where this is happening on a daily basis. And she, she knows that if she makes mention of it, people may not want to buy her house. Right. Right. And I'm sure she'd like to sell it. She wants to sell it and just get out of there. But uh, so it's under wraps. But maybe after she sells it, we could go into more detail about it. You know, I wrote under Bigfoot on my notes for today, another dimension question mark, because I, I was wondering, you know, why they have these Bigfoot shows on TV. Gary and I have seen quite a few of them. In fact, we've talked to some Bigfoot people on air with us. But why are they able to disappear without a trace? You see them running into the woods or running past something, and then they're just gone. And I, and I said, are they just going to another dimension? Yes. And, and so when you said um, they're multidimensional, it was like, I, you know, I thought so. It isn't like you're going to find them. And, and, and one of the things that has come up is you don't find any remains of Bigfoot. There's no right. Bigfoot bones out there. There's no, there's no stuff like, you know, if they die, where, where are they? Well, I don't think they're in this dimension. But when you're talking about you couldn't go to the third floor, was the sense that whatever was going on with this vortex was somehow stronger the higher you went off the ground? Why do you think that there was this um, sense of of dizziness and not being able to stand the higher you went? Well, the property itself, 
there's different parts of the property have stronger uh, reactions than the other. Okay. Uh, like my compass would spin wildly at different areas and the other ones, it was normal. But uh -huh. why in these particular areas is this thing spinning in the opposite direction or telling me the wrong directions or something? Something I don't know. So on that third floor, it may not be the floor itself. It could be from the ceiling down. Yes. Then when I hit that area, I fall to the floor. It was very embarrassing the first time I went up there. And I'm a big guy. And I, I walk up to this floor. I take a step in. And then I find myself on my face. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had to crawl off of the floor and get down to the stairs to get out of that floor. Then, so the, yeah, the vortex could actually be in the air. It doesn't have to be connected to the ground. Right. Okay. Exactly. So where the vortex exists could be could be either on the ground or in the air. And it sounds like it's possible it, it could even be inside the house. Yes, I believe wow. that. Wow. We've got about uh, five minutes left. I have one I want to talk about. <laughs> and let me approach this a bit facetiously, Carl Petrie. Suzanne and I, and we have vowed that we are going to meet up and we're going to go and get some good food together and just have a great time. We would love to to break bread with you. How about if I suggested to you, would you be all adverse to the idea that, hey, we could all meet up in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Virginia. Hey, how about that? <laughs> like Mothman Festival. Sure, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> read the book <laughs> oh we read that story okay. you got you got the heebie-jeebies and some bad juju what happened there carl um i knew nothing about point pleasant west virginia um went out there rosemary was giving a, a lecture out there and we decided we'll go out let's see what it's like and when i got there it was it was more than I care to uh, ever imagine. Uh, mm. I went up to the Lowe's Hotel and I started seeing images of, of men, if you want to call them ghosts or uh, imprints, of men discussing their barges uh, on the river. There's three rivers that intersect with Point Pleasant. And I'm watching them, listening to this conversation. Uh, I start going out in the street and I start seeing it's like another vortex of weird things happening. Um, there was a, a battle that took place not too far from the hotel, which they slaughtered Native Americans. And I'm seeing all this and I'm, I'm getting scared. I'm looking at these bridges and I'm getting very, uh, I'm not comfortable and actually frightful about what's happening in that area. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I was pleased to do so. As for going back, I don't know. I really don't think so. I'd like to. There are places I have been where I'm perfectly fine with not going back again. Been there, done that, don't need the t-shirt, right? But one of the things that was harrowing for you, as it might be for many people, the scene of this battle was of one that we know from history occurred about, it seems to me it was like 1774. So this is the Revolutionary War era, just, right. just about coming upon us. And the tribal chief was taken into custody. And before there was a treaty signed, I believe, or was it afterward, but this chief was actually murdered. Yes. 
and uh, he cursed the land. Uh, he, he put a curse on the land that it would never be right. There would be problems and, you know, anybody who lived on it would have problems and all this. And it came, I believe it came true. You know, the man was murdered, and what happened there should not really have happened. Um, and here we are in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and I look around, and it's not a place that I really want to call home. That you know, That's an honest appraisal, and I know that there are people who love that area for any number of reasons. It's a confluence of rivers, so it's not lacking in bucolic beauty, shall we say, but there's that heavy weight of history and then the paranormal. I mean, the Mothman, I still don't know what that was all about. It was a movie with Richard Gere in it. I know that much, but how some, something like that, like that so bizarre, so otherworldly could exist and what are the implications of its visit there back in 1966, as I recall, remains a mystery to this day. Well, I'm the type of person who hung around with Ingo Swan and, uh, it, for those who don't know who he was, he was a remote viewer uh, that worked for the government. And um, he was like a pioneer in remote viewing. We've got about a minute. Okay. And, you know, the stories and the things that he told me make it very easy for me to believe this stuff and not want to be so jaded or, you know, a type of person that would uh, ask for more proof after hanging around with somebody like that you get a better understanding of things. Carl Petri, we are so enjoying your book. I want to recommend that people get Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Great, great stories in it. And thank you so much for sharing your book with us today. It was my pleasure. It was wonderful. And we can't wait to have you back again. The More man, stories. The man of a million stories, all of them <laughs> fascinating. Yep. Thank you, Carl. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Coming up next... We have Jupiter Rising with Eileen Grimes. Fantastic. Have a great weekend, everyone. We're always happy to be keeping company with you right here on AM 1150.